I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Like Joshua standing up and ready to call to action this morning. That's awesome stuff. I'm so glad you're here. We finish up our series, Pick a Side, today. We've been looking at eight truths that are essential, that demand a decision. Eight truths that are biblical and foundational, that weigh heavier than, I believe, all other issues before us as a nation. So it's critical that you and I as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, make that decision with faith and with confidence in what God has for us and our nation. You know, one of the things I think the church and Christians in general have fallen to over the years and decades, I'll say, is this idea that life is made up of some things that are sacred and some things that are secular. Those are terms that are used today. So if you ask somebody, what are the sacred parts of your life? They might say things like a prayer, uh, going to church, uh, Bible study, some worship music. You say, what are the secular things, those things that are not sacred? And they would say things like work, uh, stuff at home, my finances, paying bills, uh, my hobbies, and my day-to-day life. But here's the truth. When you and I are called to faith in Jesus Christ, He doesn't come to save a piece of us. He comes to save all of us. He comes to save every part of us. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, every part of your life is sacred. There is no secular and sacred separation. It's a fallacy to think that faith shows up on a Sunday morning so that you can feel better about the past week that just happened or the rest of the week that's about to happen. No, this is part of the whole life that is sacred in following the Lord Jesus Christ. So that whether I eat or drink, I do all to the glory of God, the Apostle Paul would say. That's what you and I are called to. And that's what makes where we are in our country today so difficult for some Christians Because they look at what happens in government and politics and they say, oh, that's all secular. I've got my sacred church stuff and I don't want this stuff to touch that stuff. Kind of like when I was as a child and my mom would put food on my plate. I don't want the juice from the peas to get over into my potatoes. Are you right? Yes, I know. I understand. But when it comes to life, God says, I got some juice in the corn that belongs in the potatoes and it needs to all come together. You need to have a life that is lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, every part of it. And the horrendous, hellacious mess in our culture today is because back in the early 1900s, people in that day said, it's time for a separation between the sacred and the secular. It's time for a removal of prayer from our schools. It's time for a removal of the Ten Commandments from the workplace. It's time for the removal of God from government. And that is what got us to where we are today. We are living in the mess of that disobedience. And so today, 
You and I are called to repent of that, not walk in that any longer, and say, God, I'm going to live my life with every area surrendered to you, every part of it. There is no separation between the secular, secular and the sacred. And for those who will make that call, those who will choose to live, as we've said here before, in full send, I'm all in, every part of me, God will bless that individual. God will bless that marriage. God will bless that family. God will bless that church. God will bless that community. And God will bless that nation that does that. The scripture says in Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When a nation says, it is all yours, God, we live under your direction and lordship, he blesses. But when a nation chooses sin, rebellion, rejection, separation from God, removal of God from public life, then there will be rebellion in the land. You can't rebel against God and not expect rebellion to show up in the nation. So that's what we have. We have a breakdown of the social order today, starting in the family. We have hatred among people today. There's tension between groups in our nation. There's raging disease and there's war. And as the church, it is our responsibility in this day, in this time, to hold up the gospel and say, this is your only hope. You must turn to Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can bring healing to your soul and healing to our nation. And we have to pray for God to do that and for us to have the boldness to walk in that. And walking in that means I'm going to bring my faith into my responsibility as a citizen to vote. I'm going to bring that responsibility in to do it, but that responsibility is going to reflect how I do that as well. I'm going to make a decision based on faith because you and I now have the opportunity before us to determine the direction of our nation the course that our nation will take from this point forward. We have the opportunity to choose a philosophy, a direction. The decisions we make will affect the next judges, leaders, and laws. The laws in our land that will determine when life begins. We know when life begins. It is our responsibility to speak Laws that determine when there is murder. We know what murder is. God has defined it. Laws that define the boundaries for marriage. God has defined those. Laws that define the relationship of a nation with Israel. Our freedoms as a church. Our freedoms individually expressing our conscience and the role of government. It's essential that you and I speak to these issues. The scripture also says in Psalm 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
It is time. It's time for us to quit hiding, quit cowering, quit blending in, quit trying to cover, quit trying to act like we don't have faith. Stand up with bold faith. God will bless those who do. With that in mind, we've been looking at eight biblical truths that demand a decision over the past weeks. Quickly, I want to run through those. Truth number one, God designed life to begin in a mother's womb. Taking that life is murder. If you needed some references, go back and listen to the message on our YouTube channel. Biblical truth number two, God designed two genders, male and female. Marriage is for them only. Anything else is a distortion of his glory. I want laws that protect my grandchildren when they walk into a restroom to know that there's not going to be a man parading as a woman in that bathroom. I want laws that protect my grandchildren when they're in sports to know that they are competing against their own gender. Number three. God's calling of the church to assemble and to action is essential. We must stand against being marginalized. Our own constitution, First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment or an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Separation of church and state, as it has been told to you, is a myth Founding fathers intended for the state to stay out of the church, not for the church to stay out of the state. It was always understood that the church's role of faith would apply in matters of state. Truth number four, God calls believers to express their faith. No earthly authority is greater than this command. God blesses those who will stand and say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. God blesses those who will say, We cannot obey the laws of man because we must obey the laws of God first. Number five from last week. Personal responsibility is the foundation for life. Government should reward and protect this, not punish it. Responsibility is what God rewards and blesses. Government should reflect that. Number six, the biblical plan for provision is hard work and dependence on God, not government. Go back and listen if you need to find out more about that. Today, we tackle number seven and eight. These truths, in my estimation, from what I read from Scripture, these eight are weighty matters, and they weigh more than matters related to bitcoins, the environment. Fracking. These matters cannot be passed aside, for they are biblical in nature. That's why I stand here. My goal is to bring the biblical into the political, because we have a responsibility to do that. I am speaking as a voice based on Scripture. I'm not here to promote a political person or a party, I'm here to promote the truth. And where you find that in your person and party, I encourage you to vote. 
The message today is called Faith Demands a Biblical Response to Social Unrest. It's another part of what's happening today. If you're uncomfortable already, I would ask you just to grab your seat. It's going to get a lot worse today. <laughs> There's a philosophy crashing over our culture today. And for some, it appears that it has just arrived on the scene. However, it's been here for a long time. It started in some quiet conversations decades ago. It found its way into college classrooms where it was taught. It found its way into the subtle message of entertainment where it all lulled us into agreement by laughing at it. It began to show up in courtrooms, in law schools, and now we sit in full-fledged activist movements in support of LGBTQ rights, abortion rights, socialism, restrictions upon the church, feminism, critical race theory, intersectional theory, progressive immigration policies. Oh, these are not all new. They've been around. But the church has been quiet. The church has tried to stay out of it. And now it's in our face. Many Christians today struggle with even how to respond to what's happening in the culture because the wave has come on so heavily. And because many churches and Christians lack biblical knowledge, they don't even know what to say about it, and so they end up just going along with it. Many churches have refused to deal with governmental and political issues. Some churches have morphed the philosophies alongside the Bible. And instead of calling out sin, they demand that churches accept sin and approve sin. And churches are often adopting these philosophies as their own. Let me just say this. The day that the voice of the church sounds like the voice of the world, something's wrong. Amen. We must stop and say, what has happened to us? We sound like them. What in the world has happened to us? It is my conviction that Christians and the church have been asleep. We've tried to separate ourselves and now it is crashing over us. This philosophy is rooted and related to social justice. Now, I am for justice for the culture. Our message here at Vertical is lift him up and live him out. Spiritual brought into the social. But, well, let me say this. If your idea of social justice is the same thing as what Jesus said, I'm all in. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim deliverance to the captives, new sight to the blind, liberty to those who have been crushed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If that's your version of social justice, I'm all in. 
But that's not what the world is saying today. Today, the definition of social justice means equal treatment of all people under the law. Equal for all. Equal wealth for all. Equal income for all. Equal promotions for all. Equal benefits for all. Equal racial quotas for all. Equal government provision for health care. Equal resources, equal ownership, and the government becomes the source and the provider of all of that. I'm not for that. I'm not in support of the government leading what God has called us to depend on him for. These are the views today of Marxists, socialists, anarchists, and other radical groups. And they're driving resentment among the people of our nation, class tension, warfare, ethnic strife, tension between men and women, and a hatred for police and government. They are attempting to destroy the very fiber of what made this nation what it once was. I'm all for justice and righteousness. Because when the Bible talks about justice, it puts together two concepts. Equity, which means fair, balanced, but it also puts in righteousness with that. You cannot have one without the other. Righteous means obeying authorities. Righteousness means punishing evildoers. Righteousness means assuming personal responsibility. Strong work ethic. But today, when the movement is fueled by hatred and envy and strife and jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissensions, factions, hostility, divisiveness, bitterness, selfishness, cruelty. I can't align with that, for the Scripture does not align with that. Those are all of the works, results of walking in the flesh and under the enemy's power. With that in mind, truth number seven today that I believe demands a decision is this. Social unrest is resolved with a God-centered worldview, not victimization and division. The philosophies today couldn't be more clear. The philosophy of the world today is all about the victim. And I get it. We have all at some point been hurt, disappointed, mistreated by somebody. That's everybody. I don't care who you are. Doesn't matter what station of life, race, everyone has been hurt at some point, right? The question is, what do you do with that? The Bible offers a solution. The gospel offers a solution that calls us to free the captive but also be careful that we don't enslave ourselves with envy, bitterness, and hatred in the process. 
So today, though, if you can claim you're a victim, it's almost like you have greater credibility than those who are not the victim. Have you noticed that? The more hurt or victimized you are, the more empowered you are, the more moral authority you can claim, the more credibility you're given by the culture. But all of these things are often given to people regardless of their character, regardless if they've been honest, have a history of being true and just. All you have to do is claim victim status today, and boy, the cameras show up and the culture bows to you. This is a movement, I hope you realize. This is a strategy. In fact, there's terms that are given to it. And if you can actually claim more than one victim status, I've been victimized in this way and in this way and in this way and in this way. There's a term that's used today for that. It's called intersectionality. You can claim that these intersections in your life and these sections of your life have all been infected by this victimization. And it gives you greater moral authority and credibility in the culture if you can claim victimhood. The more, the more areas, the better. But a victim mentality is dangerous. Victim mentality justifies your hate. Victim mentality feeds on injustice. Victim mentality feeds on itself. Victim mentality lashes out in anger. Victim mentality makes you focus on what you're being deprived of. Victim mentality feeds on envy and blame. Instead of owning up and being responsible, it casts blame on everyone else, justifying your actions, justifying stealing, justifying immorality, justifying any sin. I've been hurt, therefore it's okay and right that I respond in this way. And if you disagree at any point with someone over their victimhood, you are accused of having hate speech. You can't say anything. And if you respond in any way, even the smallest ways, then you are accused of microaggressions. And if you won't be quiet, you'll get canceled. You'll get shut down. They shut down any voice that speaks against what they are about. The victimhood that they're trying to claim. They'll cancel you. They'll cancel your message. They'll cancel you on social media. They'll cancel your account. They'll cancel any statues that look like your account, belief, position, Christians must be silenced, and the church must be silenced. So we find ourselves at a very interesting spot. How do we respond as a church? Aren't we supposed to be compassionate and loving? Yes. But that's not all that we are called to be. The thing that amazed the disciples when they saw Jesus is they said, He was full of grace and truth. 
He came to set captives free, so he met them in their captivity. But he didn't just say, you poor baby. He brought them out of the situation and set them free from the captivity that was theirs. Not just the situation, but the attitude. So when people today are struggling and they've been hurt, we say to them, are you hungry for acceptance? Is that what you need? Are you, are you desperate for justice to be done in your life? Are you hurt in such a way that no one else can understand? Do you long for answers and purpose? Do you, do you have questions that no one else seems to have answers to? Then we say, great, we know a Savior who can heal, who can touch, who can bind up, and who can restore you. This is our answer for that. We don't meet people and leave them in their victimhood. We help set them free to understand how much they are loved and who they are in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to go a little bit deeper here today. There's a term that's used today. You may not have heard this term. I just used it a couple of minutes ago. And though the term is not one you may have heard about, when I begin to tell you what it looks like in the culture, you're going to quickly identify it. The term is called critical race theory. You may not have heard of it. I bet you you can identify it. It's a theory that began to be taught in law schools in the 1980s. Not many. Start off with just one. By 2002, 20 American law schools offered it in its coursework. And now it's taught in high schools and middle schools across our land through curriculums like the 1619 Project and others. You may recognize the tenets. They're rooted in Marxism that attempts to separate culture into two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. And if you can fuel the oppressed against the oppressors, then you can create a social storm and you can swoop in and take over. It's built on principles of socialism that demands equality of all resources. It's built on principles of communism where the government begins to be God and God is removed from the culture. Here's what it sounds like. Critical race theory says that racism is built into the fiber of this nation. It's everywhere. It's in every institution. It's systemic, they say. It's everywhere. Critical race theory says that racism is propagated by all, but especially those who are white. It's built into themselves, they say. And you don't realize it, you don't know it, but it is true of you. I was shocked earlier this year to hear a well-respected pastor that I follow. We've used his curriculum in our church. And I heard him say regarding racism, 
he said, a white man he is, he said, come on. Now, we all know as white people that if we see a black man approaching, we all get scared. Are you kidding me? Don't read into my motives, sir. And don't put a blanket out there that says we are all the same. Don't tell white people they are all the same. Don't tell black people they are all the same. That they, dependent upon your race, you think, feel, and have a perspective that's exactly the same as all the others in your race. That's not true. There are people across the board in every race and socioeconomic group in our nation today. And some theory that says, I am just like someone else based on the color of my skin is a theory that in and of itself is racist. Just follow that around. It's a circle. You'll find yourself back at the beginning again. The other tenets of critical race theory are that if you disagree with this or claim to not be racist, then it proves you're racist, they say. Even if you're black and you say these things, you're called much worse names. Another tenet is that it is impossible for someone to be colorblind. And so, according to critical race theory, if you say all lives matter, racist, you've just put yourself back in the category again. And they say the only answer to the problem is a complete destruction of the current model of our society. Education, income, government, police, and family must all be deconstructed and rebuilt according to their way of thinking. This theory is unbiblical. This theory is destructive. This theory is counter to the message of the gospel and will prove to be the undoing of a culture that buys into it. So as a church, we stand against it. I stand against the message of the movement Black Lives Matter. I believe black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter because God created us and Jesus came to redeem us and the ultimate picture will be seen in heaven when one day every people from every tribe and tongue will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and declare him as Lord. Amen? Amen. This theory, surprisingly to me, is counter even to that of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In his speech, which I want you to see parts of, he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of men, my font is so small, that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaves' owners will all be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Amen? Hey, 
We're not through. Let's go on. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Woo! My heart beats with that, and my heart breaks for that in this day, because some, in an attempt, it appears, to bring about oneness, are actually creating the very problem that Martin Luther King had a dream to avoid. People are all of a sudden being judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their heart. That has to end. You and I must stand up against that. We cannot buy into that. We cannot go along with it. You can't come up next to it and hug it. You gotta stand against that. We're not through yet. Let's go on. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will all be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Amen. So I stand against, and as believers, we should biblically stand against anything that would seek to create further division and hatred and jealousy and warfare between the races. God speaks strongly about this on many occasions, but because this is just one service, I'm going to use one passage. Proverbs chapter 6. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Hey, whatever happens next in this list, pay attention. You're about to get on the hate and abomination list of God. I don't want to be on that list. Amen? I don't want to be anywhere near it. I don't want to be on the sidelines of that game. I want to be far from it. Here it is. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. This is is God's, I hate to cheapen it by even saying this, his naughty list, because it's far worse than that. These are things that God, in all of his righteous indignation, his holiness says, I hate these things. They are an abomination to me. So when I see a group of people that appear to be using this as their mandate and job description within our country... I'm going to choose to stand over on God's side about all this matter. I want to stand where he does, not away from it. 
I want to stand right up next to him. So when I look around today, I see some movements that sound like this. I also see the voice of someone I used to trust sound like this. I grew up with my mom and dad and the TV being a regular part of life. Maybe you did too. Dinner time, TV's on. Lunch time, TV's on. Breakfast time, TV's on. And a, a regular routine every day was the 5 o'clock news, 6 o'clock news, and 10 o'clock news. Just a regular thing. And the idea was that here was the news going to tell you what's going on out there because you didn't have a way to know what was going on out there. And so you found a channel you liked. You found some broadcasters that you seemed to trust because they were nice, funny, whatever, serious, whatever you liked, you found them, you trusted them. I'm going to tell you what. The media embodies this passage today. I do not trust them anymore. I don't watch the news anymore. It took me a while to fast myself off of it, but I have. The great thing is today with social media, I don't need a third party telling me about what's going on out there. I can go listen to the sources of the people that I want to know about. And the media has always had this false thing. It's a lie that you and I have all believed. It's a lie that says that it's possible for someone to be unbiased. You know that's not possible, right? You're not convinced yet, are you? Because you've been taught that it was possible to be impartial, unbiased. Everybody has a bias. You have a bias. God has a bias. There's some things he likes and loves, and there's some things he hates. He can't stand in the middle because he is righteous and holy and just. And if you and I are going to have a perspective on life that aligns with God's, it's going to be biased. Everybody has a bias. Let me just show you an example of how bias works. A young man is standing before his family. He tells them something. Two people come out of the room with very different stories. One says, that was beautiful, so moving, so encouraging and empowering. The other one walks out of the room and says, that was horrible. It's, I'm so discouraged. My heart is broken. Two people? Different perspectives on one thing that happened? Because they each reported it based on their bias. What did the man say? The man said, I've chosen to no longer be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm an atheist. One person said, beautiful, encouraging, freeing. Why? Because of his bias. Another one said, I'm heartbroken, discouraged, and sad because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. As you get your information today, as you get your news about what, what is happening, I encourage you, use that list as your filter. 
Go to the source. Eliminate that third party who's trying to tell you what has happened. And hear what God is saying in the matter. If we want to see peace come to our land, then we have to step in and be more clear about who we are and what God is for. We have to understand the biases and the messages that are out there today. And you and I have to have the message of hope. And you and I have to recognize that as a church, we are called to be the example of what life looks like under the sun. You and I, as the church, should be the example of what life looks like. That's why in the New Testament, you have Paul writing to the churches, and he says things like this. Look at this next set of verses here. In Ephesians, he says to them, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It doesn't matter what nation you've come from, what social group you've come from, what ethnicity that you are. When you come into the church, Paul said, you are now all fellow citizens of the saints, with the saints, and members of the household of God. This is now who you are, one in him. Live that way. In our day, if we want to see impact on culture problems today, even race issues today, then we have to be the example here as the church of what it looks like to love one another in spite of color, in spite of class, but all based on the character and content of your heart. Amen? This is our calling. This is a big issue. And it must be one that we consider carefully. Which philosophy is going to give support for the church to speak, which philosophy is going to give individuals the freedom to live out their conscience, which philosophy is going to stand against dangerous concepts like critical race theory, Antifa, and the horrible tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement. We must also pray for healing and be the example. Now, let's move on to number eight. Truth number eight. God has ordained law and order to keep peace in a culture. They should be prayed for and supported, not maligned and defunded. There's a spirit of anger, rebellion, and anarchy in our land today. And it doesn't take much of a spark to cause someone to flee to the streets and exercise their anger and rebellion, throw off all restraints rebel against all authority and destroy whatever they want, steal from whoever they choose and justify themselves. These actions fly in the face of God's law that calls us to love our neighbor as ourself, to do not steal, to obey governing authorities and to pray for one another. God has established order in a land. God gave his own people law for them to keep. God gave a way for them to have justice when the law was violated. There were penalties for those who violated it. There were blessings for those who kept it. 
As we come into the New Testament, at a time when even the governmental authorities are governing, they're not all godly. And in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul would write about those authorities and say, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Paul was encouraging Christians to obey even ungodly rulers. He said, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. You know, God has established order and called people to maintain that order in a culture. And there are times that you and I have the very personal admonition that if someone offends us, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to give to those who ask of us. We're to love and not hate in return. But hear me clearly. Police authorities are not told to turn the other cheek. They're called to carry out the law. They're, they bear the sword, the Bible says here. They have the power to enforce the law. And they are called to do so. Now, I recognize within police as well as in any other field within our nation, including the ministry, that there are people who are respectable and there are people who are not respectable. But because of a disrespectful few it does not the, negate the need for the office and the position in our culture. And they should be dealt with according to the law. But it does not mean that because there's been a few bad apples in some churches that all churches should be shut down. In my years of ministry, I've met a lot of people who have been burned in church, who've been hurt by some pastors that they trusted, by some people that they looked to, and somewhere along the way, they got burned by them. They got hurt by them. And that happens once to somebody, and they say, ah, you know, I'm just going to go find another church and just move along. Let that happen a second time to someone, and someone says, hmm, this is tough. I'm going to stay out of this thing for just a little while. You let it happen a third time to somebody, my experience tells me that that person is going to check out of church and maybe even faith. When I meet someone like that, it's tough because I'm the guy they don't trust. But my calling is to help bring healing to them and bring them back into the fellowship of believers in a place that's healthy. In our culture, there needs to be righteousness first and foremost. But we're not going to get there if there can't be a rule of law, if there can't be those who enforce the law, if there can't be a way to even 
bring justice swiftly. You know, the ability of a culture to deal with crime quickly affects how much crime that nation will have in it. Listen to this. Make a note. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. People are like wet concrete, the verse says. And if you don't have an order in your nation to swiftly bring about justice for those who commit evil, then you will cause people's hearts to be set, concrete, fixed on doing evil all the time because they don't recognize justice or judgment for their offense. So it is foolish to think that defunding, dismantling the very force that has been designed to keep peace in our land that somehow by doing that, it would create greater peace. No, it would only enforce a greater spirit of anarchy. Now, you might think, dude, you have been way too political in this whole series. No, I don't believe so. I believe I'm just trying to catch up on bringing the Bible over into culture. And it looks so crazy all of a sudden because it's not something we're used to. But the biblical has to come before the political. And the biblical must shape the political. And if you're not letting your biblical relationship with God affect your political view of a nation, then you've gone back to the very thing that I said we should never do, separate the sacred from the secular. Now, you might think, okay, glad these... Eight are done. We got done with them. So now what? What now? Because you might look out at the nation and what's going on, you might think, I don't know. I know what we ought to stand for, but I don't know what's going to happen next. It just People have all these opinions about what's going to happen after Tuesday even. I want to give you my hope and actual conviction about what I think is going to happen next. In other words, what is on the horizon. And to do so, I tell a short story from the Old Testament. 1 Kings 18, Elisha has been in battle against an anti-God movement in his nation. And it's come down to a point of just stone-cold battle. And so Elisha calls them to meet together one day all the people. And it says that Elijah came out and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Elijah said, Pick a side. It's time. Then Elijah set out and he prayed to God and they set up these series of altars and the prophets of Baal did and Elijah did and they were going to see whose God was going to answer. Whose God was going to show up on this pick-a-side moment? 
And sure enough, the prophets of, of Baal, they cried out and they cried out and they, they cut themselves and they were in agony, pleading for their gods to come accept the sacrifice and nothing happened. Elijah went over and he said, hey, why don't you just for good measure throw some more water on these, uh, this offering right here that's going to be licked up here in just a moment just so you can see the power of God. And Elijah simply prayed and asked God to show himself strong and fire came down from heaven, licked up the sacrifice, and God proved he was God that day. You see, they'd been going through a, a, a drought up to that point. There had been some physical consequences because of their spiritual belief. Physical consequences because of their spiritual belief. There was a drought in the land up to that point. When that happened, the Bible says that Elijah knelt down and he prayed because what had not happened yet was rain. Is it going to rain now? God showed he was God. Is it going to rain? Is, are we going to see the prayers of the people answered? He knelt down and he prayed. And he told his servant, he said, go look and see if it's raining yet. No, it's not raining yet. Go again. It's still not raining yet, Elijah. Go again. The Bible says he went seven times. Elijah wouldn't give up because he was confident something was coming. God always keeps his promises when a people will pick his side. The seventh time the servant came back and he said, hey, um, I really hate to say anything, but um, it does look like there's a little cloud it's just about the size of a man's hand. It's really, really, really small. And Elijah said, get up quick. Run now. Run. There's a storm coming. And that servant was like, it's just a little cloud. But Elijah knew when God starts to answer his promises, you can count on him finishing his promises. So today, when I look at what's happening in our culture, you might think, it just seems all so terrible. It just seems all so destructive. It's just the worst. It's all going to get worse and worse. I'm going to tell you what I see. I see people today praying that have not prayed before in a long time. I see people coming to church who haven't been to church in a long time. I'm hearing stories come out of California of pastors saying, we chose to open. We've been preaching the gospel. I used to have 300. Now I got 1,500. And they haven't been to church before. They're coming to seek the Lord. Hey, when I see that, when I see what's happening here, when I see people who have never been in these doors before, I say, welcome, God's at work. When I see people coming and saying, I want to get my, right, my, my life right with the Lord. I want to be saved, and I want to be baptized. I know God's at work. When I see marriages begin to heal, when I see people coming together, when I see Christians starting to get their feet and stand up and have some confidence and boldness, I say, look out. There's a storm coming. I see a cloud. Amen? That's what I see. I see God doing a work today different than he's done before. And it took us going through some just hellacious times to get here. And it may not be over yet, but God is in it. God is working. God is calling his people. And you sense it. You feel it. And now it's our responsibility to respond to him. To say, Lord, I'm going to pick a side. And it's your side. And I'm all in, Lord. 
I'm going to live out this thing, not just for an election, but for my life. Would you bow your heads with me? I want us to pray, and I want us to pray passionately. I want us to pray not just for ourselves in this moment, and not just for our church, but I want us to pray for our nation. Father, I thank you so much to live in a land that was built on freedom. It was built by some men and women who had known tyranny, who had known the inability to worship freely and to live out their faith. And they said, we must be free. And they came and built a land based on truth. And they built it based on wisdom from your word. They weren't perfect, but they were passionate to glorify you. I thank you that out of what they formed, we still exist today. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for truth from your word. And as difficult as it is, I thank you for the trial that has brought us even to this point today. I haven't liked what got us to this point. I haven't liked all the times of wondering and people that have been hurt and freedoms that have been lost and lives that have been taken. But God, I'm grateful for a chance for your church to stand up, to rise up, to believe you, to trust you, to be salt, to be light, to be ambassadors, to be the spokesman of truth, to be the pillar and the foundation of truth, to be your people here in this nation today. And I pray today for our nation, God, Continue to break hearts. Continue to show yourself strong. Continue to prove that there is no other way but by you. That there is no other truth. There's only one truth that's found in our Lord Jesus. God, bring them to an end of their ways that they might cry out to you. And may we be ready in that moment to stand up with the answer, to give a reason for the hope that's in us. May we, based on having picked a side, pick you. And may they do the same, Lord. And may we be a nation that glorifies you, that honors you, that can all stand together, all with one voice, and say, Jesus is Lord. No matter where we've come from or what we look like, we know the power of redemption. So God, we pray for our nation. We pray for you to move. We pray all this in the strong, the powerful, the mighty, the matchless, the indescribable name of Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Stand with us as we sing today.